0: There's an old Twilight Zone movie. I guess it was a TV show, I should say that. Some of you watched it. Uh, it was in black and white. Some of you younger ones here are thinking, whoa, this is a real legacy moment coming from our pastor today. And it is that. But it was an interesting episode where in the final scene, a man is, is sitting at a cafe talking with a fellow worker, uh, talking with a fellow working at the counter. And this is the scene that has the big reveal in it. The big reveal is that the man who is sitting at breakfast has both his hands occupied, but then surprisingly out from underneath his jacket emerges a third hand with which he grasps his coffee cup. And then he discloses to the man who's behind the counter that not only has he come from Mars to colonize the earth, but that many more like him would soon be following. And he relishes what a revelation that must be to this poor ignorant earthling. This man who works behind the counter, who wears this cap pulled down low over his brow, almost to his eyebrows. But that man suddenly starts smiling and then removes his food service cap, revealing a shocking third eye in the middle of his forehead. And he laughs at the man with three arms, that the Martians are so far behind because the Venusians have been populating Earth for some time now. And so it ends this shocking reveal that aliens are among us. Now, some of you have noticed that my title for my message this morning is unusually shocking in that it describes evangelizing Martians. And you might think, I've read through my Bible several times and I've never seen any evidence of Martians being in it and yet I think if you'll notice the text carefully this morning that there must have been what we should legitimately call Martians because Paul is now in the city of Athens in the ancient world this region called Achaia having the leading cities of it being Corinth and Athens Athens was named for the goddess Athena and this was a place, as you will know from your study of world history, that was at one time certainly the cultural center of the world. And at one time, its political center. But the city of Athens is now something on, uh, definitely on the decline. Its heyday was 500 years before the Apostle Paul steps into the city. It is probably his first time there. And he's walking around the city, I think, probably as a tourist I know I would. I have never been to Athens. I would love to see the Parthenon. Many of these ancient structures that have been preserved for us. Archaeological wonders. Uh, They suggest many, many things of the glory that at one time was Greece. But as Paul is walking around, no doubt he saw uh, pointers to a location known as the Areopagus. That is uh, a place that was named after Ares, the Greek god of war. And then the Romans would have renamed it because you'll note that they renamed all the Greek gods, gave them Roman names, Latin names. So the Greek god Ares was renamed as Mars. Mars was the god of war. And so depending on the version of the scriptures that you have, you may see it rendered variously, either the Areopagus, which was this hill, where the philosophers would meet and talk, or you may have it described as Mars Hill. Now, if you are from a certain place that you spend an awful lot of time, you are often called by that place. So if you are from Atchison, we would call you an Atchisonian, right? If you are from America, you get called an American. And if you spend all your time on Mars Hill, it would only be right to call you a what? A Martian. Right. So it is these people that Paul is speaking with in our passage today, and that's why I say it's about evangelizing Martians. Get it? So let's look at our text today. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16, and we'll just go through verse 21 today. This will be part one of a two-part message. The Word of God says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, except telling or hearing something new. Father, we ask that you would give us grace today as we seek to understand and apply your word to the world in which we live, which to many of us looks stranger and stranger day by day. And Lord, as we look strange to them, and the message that we have seems very strange to them, would you give us grace and power to share it winningly, convincingly, powerfully. And we pray that there would be some who would believe as we're faithful to share the message of Christ. Give us grace now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the city of Athens, it may surprise you, in the day in which Paul lands here, as he has been escorted by a couple of men from Berea. Why? For his safety. Remember, they headed as if it were right to the coast. And then they turned south and head down, not actually toward a harbor to take a ship to get back to wherever it was he came from, but in a little bit of a fake, moved to the south because Paul is not done evangelizing on this area. He wants to go down and minister to the southern part of Greece. And so he is in the city of Athens. He sends the two men from Berea back, or the those who accompanied him, however, it, however many it was, with the instructions to send Silas and Timothy as soon as possible, because he doesn't want to carry on ministry alone. They are part of a mission's team. And though the temperature had gotten a little too hot, spiritually speaking, for him to stay in Berea and certainly couldn't go back, into Thessalonica, and pretty much the whole area of Macedonia was now closed to Paul because of those who had the ear, and these were some pretty hostile Jews, had the ear of the local authorities. Paul can't go back there, but he needs his missions team to come now and join him in Athens. So as I say, Athens was a city of tremendous history and culture. But at this time, it's very much in decline there are those who have estimated the population of Athens to be maybe 10,000 at this time, which gave me a little bit of of a lift in my heart. I know many of us think we live in a really small town in Atchison, but the likelihood is that our town is now bigger than Athens was at this time. But it had something in far greater number than we have. As the text says, Paul, as he is there in Athens waiting for his missionary team, saw the spirit the city sorry, full of idols. Some of the first century uh, writers tell us, not, not scriptural writers, but others say that there were more idols than men in the city of Athens. Pliny the Elder actually uh, estimated the number of idols there as being 30,000. Now, just stop and imagine for a moment if there were 30,000 idols of various kinds. And we're talking about statues prominently placed there in front of shops or there in public squares or in temples of various kinds. 30,000 idols in in the city of Athens. Yeah, they were outnumbering people three to one. Can you imagine walking around this town? And virtually everywhere, every aisle you go into at Walmart, there's an idol. Every church you go into, there are idols. Every shop you go into, multiple idols. Temples and statuary all over the place of gods and men. And Paul is not there taking in the scenery and saying, wow, that's so amazing. Oh, look at that building. No, the more he sees the more he is grieved. In fact, that is your Greek word. It's provoked. It it occurs three times in the New Testament. You've already seen one of them. You've seen the place in Acts 15 where there is sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas over whether they're going to take Mark on that next missionary journey. Remember the the contention so sharp it's described between them that they actually part company and form two missions teams, not under good terms, but under very much difference of opinion about this man. And that was not a great moment in missions history, not a great moment in the life of the Apostle Paul or that of Barnabas. True. Yet it's an evidence of how sharp this word is. So we come to this Greek word here, and that's what's going on in the life of Paul. Within him, as he's looking at the idols, he is grieved in his spirit. Do you get grieved about some things? I'll bet there's some things that people post on Facebook that really wipe you out or make you angry. And you want to make a post about them and set the record straight for all the world to know that you are so strongly grieved over this thing or that thing. By the way, let me make a a suggestion to you as a Christian. Don't let the world jerk you around with its causes. As a Christian, make sure that you're marching to the beat of a heavenly drummer, that the Lord is the one who is setting the agenda for you. Don't get dragged into needless controversies that do nothing but split people apart And make you angry all the time. Right? There's a better way to live than that. And I see that Paul, his spirit is provoked within him. You would say, Pastor, isn't it okay to get upset about idolatry? (laughs) I would say yes, because our Lord is a jealous God. Now, jealousy is a legitimate response when you have a covenant obligation to somebody. Isn't that true? Uh, There is my wife on the third seat in that very back section. And she's sitting all alone. But if some strange guy came into the service this morning and sat down right beside her and then seemed to fix his attention on her during the rest of this sermon, I guarantee you I would have a hard time preaching without distraction. And I would have a legitimate reason for that, wouldn't I? You would expect a husband to be jealous of his wife in a situation like that. True. Now, if we're children of the living God, in fact, to change the metaphor, if we are members of the bride of Christ. okay, then if we are disloyal to our husband, who is the Lord Jesus, then he has the right to be jealous about that, doesn't he? When we create idols. We also incur divine jealousy and legitimately so. It's interesting that's the word that Elijah uses. When he describes his actions, he's sitting on Mount, uh, on Mount Horeb and he's actually dejected over the way things have gone. He had hoped to see great revival, but it didn't last very long. And when the Lord says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? His answer is, I have been very, here's the word, jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Why was he jealous? Because he wanted to see Israel return in faithfulness to her Lord and husband. And yet Israel was an idolatrous and adulterous wife to the Lord God of Israel. And in many cases, the church is too. But we look at our society today and we see a great deal of idolatry around us. It's not of the Athenian kind, but we have other kinds. There are folks who will put an idol of an individual in their front yard and put what looks like a bathtub around it. And that idol stays there for various purposes that they have. There are those who idolize sports. They won't come to church. All the ball games are way too important on Sunday. There are those who have idols of rock stars and movie stars. And these, I mean, we do have a show that kind of tips our hands, don't we? It's called American. Isn't that interesting? You said, well, it's a talent show, Pastor, I know. But the title of it, I think, does betray how much importance many people put in those things. There are many people who make idols out of pleasure, idols out of drugs, idols out of liquor, alcohol of various kinds, idols out of money. Need we go further? You know, when we look at Athens, maybe we're looking at a city that has fewer idols than we actually have. Because how many people's lives are dominated by multiple gods? A god is anything that is put above the one true and living God. How many things are more important to the average person than the one true and living God? Friends, I think if you, if you recognize the validity of that issue... You realize how great is our need of repentance in our in our country today. Now we look at our text and see that the apostle had a great deal of heart grief. This is a burden. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, I have three eyes for you, just like a Martian might have three eyes. I've got three eyes for my outline. Are you ready? Number one. We need to know how to evangelize Martians. And number one is have an inner burden for them. That's the first eye. An inner burden for them. He was provoked, wasn't he? The Apostle Paul. But notice what he did. He did not stay in a state of provocation and do nothing about it. He let his inner burden for what he was seeing turn him to action. What's the action that a Christian should take when you're burdened about the sin around you? Well, the answer is you share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason for this inner burden was that Athens was a city of ancient lies. Intellectuals dominated its thinking. There were legendary figures who had established schools of thought there, like Socrates. Some of you know his famous advice was to know thyself know yourself and that was an effort to turn emphasis from physics around him to a knowledge of oneself there was Plato who followed Socrates with profound development of metaphysical ideas after after them was Aristotle who who was amazing he had almost encyclopedic knowledge about Almost everything in the natural world about flora and fauna and animals and weather and planets and just about everything. And his idea was that it was all interconnected. He tried to uh, interrelate or unify both physics and metaphysics. Then there was Zeno and Epicurus. Both of these were less uh, metaphysical and more practical. And by the way, they're going to come up prominently in our text in a moment. So pay attention carefully here. Zeno taught on the stoa. That is a Greek word for a porch. In fact, it was called the stoa poikile, which means the painted porch. So I guess it was very colorful and people would hang out there and listen to him teach. Zeno was the father of stoicism. Then that's what his movement was called since they met on the stoa. Now, his noble ideas appealed very much to the Romans. Things like self-mastery and enduring hardness. In other words, not being a wimp and giving up, but you soldier on through difficulty and be strong and you don't show pain. You, you press on to all of that. Austerity and pride. Pride in what you are commissioned to do. You do your job and if you can't do your job well, well, suicide's an option. You say, really? Yeah, for the Stoics. That's how they approached life. In, uh, they had a very unloving view of life and a pantheistic philosophy. So this is kind of on one extreme. Okay? Here's the other extreme, the Epicureans. And probably some of you are aware that Epicureanism is kind of a, a term for people who love pleasure. And that's exactly what Epicurus taught. He called it the chief goal of life. What are we here for? Have a good time. Enjoy life. Have fun. The Epicureans thought gods were irrelevant. Why? Because the gods that they were all aware of were unconcerned with the lives of the people. Now, the Stoics looked at the Epicureans and thought they were atheists. In fact, they called them that. People like Lucretius and Horace uh, were representative of the Epicurean school of thought. Now, you might hear of these things and say, you know, that sounds a lot like people I know about today. There are people who think that way, and probably Epicureanism has the upper hand in our society today. I'll bet a lot of people you know think life is all about all the fun you can get out of it. You live for Friday nights, you live for partying, you live for your 24 pack of Bud, you live for your music, you live to party. You live for entertainment. You live for sports. That's what life is all about. Grab all the gusto you can. You're not going to be around long. Eat, drink, and be merry. Well, that's the Epicurean part. What's the other part of that statement? For tomorrow we die. That's the stoic part about it. Isn't it interesting that old statement brings together these two philosophies of life that Paul was encountering as he's walking through the marketplace of Athens, Epicureans and Stoics. He saw it all around him. And what was the theology of the place? A bunch of statues that represented nothings. 30,000 statues of non existent beings. And we just stop and think about the poverty that must have been in people's souls who lived in Athens. If you really stop and think about it, it'll begin to break the Christian heart. Because here are people who are walking around desperately pursuing things that will never satisfy. The Epicureans are living for pleasure, sinning their lives away. The Stoics are determined to resolutely put up with all the difficulties of life and act like it doesn't affect them all, but inwardly, they're dying. And what's the theology that saves them? Well, a bunch of stone and marble representations of gods that can't do anything about it. And here's Paul, who has been saved out of what was really a religious paganism, which was his Judaism that did not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he was found by Christ on the road to Damascus, his life was changed. He was no longer trying to work the system to accomplish his own salvation by goodness. That would be kind of like the Stoics, wouldn't it? But he realized Christ Jesus was the one who came to deliver him from this present evil world. He put his faith in him and was marvelously transformed. And now this man is going around the world preaching the Gospel of Jesus Christ to anybody who will listen. Now, friends, here is my piece of advice for you. Do like the Apostle Paul and turn your irritation. Turn your indignation. Turn even your strong feelings of being provoked about the sinfulness that you see in the society around you into motivation to share the gospel with these folks. In other words, turn what might be a defense into your offense. Don't just storm out of the marketplace and say, oh, these people are a lot more lost than a goose. It just irritates me. Where has our country gone? We all say it, don't we? Well, friends, I'll tell you where our country has gone. It's gone back to the paganism of the old world in many respects. So what do you do? Well, notice what to do with the inner burden. I find that the Apostle Paul in the second place, verse 17, seeks out an interface with him. If you're taking notes, that's the second I, an interface. In other words, find a way to connect. Now, this is kind of a geek term, isn't it? Interface. You say, Pastor, sounds like computers. And yeah, there, there is that interface is the idea of how your software makes your hardware to work, right? You've got a computer at home. Okay. the computer that sits on your desk is the hardware. Now, the operating system that actually is on your computer helps you interface with that hardware. Does this make sense? So you have to find a way when you have a burden for lost people to interface with them. You know, there are a lot of lost people in our community, right? The question is, how are we going to interface with them? They live around you. Sometimes they come home in their cars and they hit their automatic garage door opener and (laughs) up it goes. And then this car disappears into the garage, and then behind it goes the door. And they never come out. Except occasionally you'll see them take their garbage to the the curb. And you're like, I don't even know who these people are that I live next to. Right? There are communities like that. And it's amazing you can live in the midst of thousands of people and feel like you're all alone. Because you never interface. It's a society where fewer and fewer people like to sit out on the porch and wave at people who go by. True. And so it is an important question for us to ask in the world in which we live. How are we going to interface with people who are in desperate need of something in many cases that they don't even know they lack? And are not interested in having. Those are important questions, aren't they? You have a burden. You're like Paul. You're agitated. You want to share. You've got idolaters all around you. You want to share the truth. How are you going to do it? Well, I find a couple of hints from the passage that Luke gives us under inspiration. Remember, Luke is writing, describing the continuing work of Jesus Christ through the Apostles. Now it's the Apostle Paul who's front and center in this account. He is in Athens. We come to verse 17. And it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Let's stop there. Who are the Jews? Well, these were God's chosen people from long ago, starting with Abraham, coming on down to the present day. They have a synagogue. This is a place where they gather together to read the Scriptures, to teach the Scriptures, to encourage one another in the ways of the Old Testament. And yet... Many of them had never heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came to be our Savior and deliver from our sins. These are at least people who know the Bible. Let's start with that. How do you interface with people who need Christ? Number one, do they know the Bible at all? Because that's where Paul begins. He starts in the synagogue with people who knew the word. Now, we're living in a day in which fewer and fewer people know the Bible. In the land in which we live, here's the statistic. This one is 2016. The trend is that only about a third of all Americans, a third now, report reading the Bible once a week or more. There is a strong likelihood, two out of three, that a person you may speak with does not read their Bible even once a week. And I think you know there are people who have never opened their Bible. They have no idea what their Bible says. Pay heed here because there is a way to minister to people and give the gospel to them, even if they are totally unfamiliar with the Bible. But you start with those. You can have a gospel conversation. You can show what the Bible teaches about what the coming Messiah looks like, You can identify that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and you can so present Christ to them. Will all of them accept it? They certainly didn't when Paul preached it. They won't when you and I do either. So let's be faithful with that method. But second, notice that he also preached or reasoned, verse 17, in the synagogue with the devout persons. Now, these are God-fearers. These would be Gentiles who would say, I'm looking to have a relationship with God. Looks like the Jews know the God of the Old Testament. Certainly the Bible is there. We're going to hang out with them, hear what they have to say. Many of them had adhered to Judaism to a lesser or greater degree. They're kind of lumped together then as God fearers or devout persons. This is the second group. Let's apply it. We also should minister the word then interface with those who have reverence for the word of God or respect. That doesn't mean they're, full, they're all in believers, but at least if you're holding a Bible in your hand and saying this is what God says, they're going to say, well, that's, that's important. I'll give, a, I'll give a hearing at least to somebody who's talking like that. Do you know people like that? They don't go to church, but they're respectful of the Bible. I would say in the second place. Those are people we can interface with. Here's the third group. When we go on in the text, in verse 17, it says, and in the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be there. Now, what takes a person to the marketplace? This is the Greek word agora. This is the main street of the city of Athens. It's lined with columns, as almost all the cities were in that day. And there on either side were porches, uh, they, were, they were kind of uh, coverings, and these, this is the place where the merchants were selling their wares. So people were going to the marketplace to do what? Buy stuff, buy food, buy clothes, buy supplies. And then occasionally there were the porches where people would hang out and listen to the philosophers, people like Zeno, people like Epicurus. Well, Paul looks at this whole arrangement and says, you know what? I've got a philosophy. I would like to share with some people. And since people will stop and give a listen to what people are saying, he says, I believe I'm going to do the same thing. Now, some of you might say, Pastor, is it really legitimate to call Christianity a philosophy? We'll stop and break it down a minute. Philosophy means a lover. A philosopher the lover of wisdom, right? Sophos is the Greek word for wisdom. Philos is to love. Now, the Bible says that our Lord Jesus Christ is made unto us. This is first Corinthians one thirty wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that he who glories should do this. He had a glory in the Lord. You ask me what great thing I know that fills me and stirs me. So it's Jesus Christ, the crucified. He is my wisdom. How about you? And so for us, we are philosophers in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There was a man in early church history by the name of Justin Martyr, and he had searched out all of the prevailing philosophies of the day and had become uh, viewed as an esteemed teacher of them. But then he he encountered one that he had never heard before as he heard somebody teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Justin became a Christian. And you might think that he put aside his philosopher's robes at that point. But Justin thought, no, I have come upon the one true philosophy. And he kept wearing the philosopher's robes all the rest of his life. And if you read his dialogues with people, they are marvels of argumentation. Very, very persuasive. I commend them to you. But I think it should be true of us as well. When you have found the great source of wisdom who is the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, do not feel when you encounter people with wrong philosophies that you have to keep your mouth shut. They're wise and you're ignorant. Not true. Paul has come into the intellectual center of the world and look at the interaction with them in verse 18. And this will be the third eye for taking notes this morning. And that is to seize your inroads to them. Inroads. Seize your inroads to them. Why? Because if the Lord wants you to witness to them, he'll open up a way to talk to them. Okay. so what are the inroads here? Well, the first one is a little odd. It says in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. You might underline that word conversed. It actually could be uh, translated to argue or dispute. (laughs) Uh, The translators have made a choice to make it a little softer word in translating it. And it may well be right, but it could have also been pretty intense. What I find is when Paul went into into an area and started preaching the Lord Jesus Christ is it got some pretty strong reactions. Oftentimes people were saved and oftentimes people rioted. And I can well imagine in this place, as he was preaching absolute truth, those who do not believe in absolute truth react very strongly against those who do. Have you noticed that? And they claim to be very tolerant people. But when you say there is only one way of salvation, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. They shut you down. They don't want to hear any more from you. I'm going to guess that Paul elicited similar responses when he preached in this place. Now, their curiosity shows up in their mockery. The Epicureans seem to have zero interest in the gospel. As we've noted, they say, eat, drink and be merry, right? These are the people who really will often have no interest in your gospel because it seems to get in the way of their good time. They say, why should I be a Christian and have a drag for the rest of my life? All you people do is go to church and sing songs and read your Bible. You never have any fun. And there are an awful lot of young people who are essentially Epicurean in their approach to life. Look around the churches for the Millennials. You'll find very few. Because many are frankly very Epicurean in their approach to life. So you might wonder, how can we reach these people? Well, sometimes they may just respond with a God-induced curiosity, even as they mock you. Now, they do mock, as you see in the verse. It is of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that some say... What does this babbler wish to say? You might underline that word babbler. It's a Greek word spermologos. A sperma is a seed. Logos would have to do with a word, but in this particular case, it means a seed picker. The idea being, this, this would be an epithet, something you would use to slam somebody, to, to throw them down, that this person, in terms of the rich body of philosophy, really doesn't have the goods. They go around repeating little scraps of information they've gotten from other people. They're not really studied. They're not real intellectuals. They're lightweights. And they're just robots repeating what others say. That's kind of what they're saying about Paul here. He's not a real intellectual heavyweight. He's a seed picker. guy with scraps of knowledge that he's sharing here and there. And isn't it sad that somebody would have that kind of intellectual uh, panache, that, that intellectual um, uh, pride where they're discrediting the gospel that they desperately need and trying to make him out to be the one who's impoverished, when in reality it's it's they who are impoverished. There are also the Stoics. They converse with him. Notice another thing that was said, and I'm sure that Paul related this to Luke. It says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That word uh, uh, divinities is the Greek word for actually demon. And this is coming from the standpoint of the Greeks who were saying basically all the spirit beings here, these, these are some we never heard of before. And notice they're saying it kind of cautiously. He seems to be. They couldn't get a real handle on what it was Paul was talking about, but, oh, it's was some sort of strange theology that he had. And notice the curiosity in it. There were things that they really didn't understand. They didn't have a handle on. But they were like, so what's it all about? I mean, we haven't heard it before. Maybe we should give a, get a hearing here and see... What it is he has to say. Now, friends, you may have acquaintances at work, co-workers, family members, people in your neighborhood, some friends who really don't believe all of what you believe about Christ. And sometimes they may even say things that are kind of dismissive or hurtful to you. But what there might be that you're missing here is some curiosity. In other words, they might actually want to hear more about what it is that you believe. Not that they're all in, that they're buying, but they're saying, I really would at least like to hear it. And I find that that is the second thing here as an inroad that is given. Wouldn't it be cool to get an invitation to come and speak to a philosopher's society? And to to just testify of your conversion, your faith in Jesus Christ, you said, Pastor, I'd be so intimidated by that. I could never do it. But here's the Apostle Paul, and that actually is what he gets. Notice in verse 19, it says that. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Ah, now who opens the door like that? Only God does, right? This is what Paul was looking for. Opportunity to share Christ. And now they're inviting him to come up to the the Mars Hill, the Areopagus, to lay out these strange things that he has now been sharing in the marketplace, but in a fuller way to a larger group a chance to lay it all out on the table to dialogue with them. That is your word that comes up earlier, the exchange where he wasn't just speaking without interruption, but somebody can say, well, what about this? You said this to clarify something. And that was okay. Don't be afraid of having an open conversation with somebody who may not be fully acceptant of what you're sharing about the gospel, handle the questions, move on. And here's the invitation. And notice their disposition, verse 21, was that they liked to do nothing more. In fact, it says they did nothing else but to hear or tell some new thing. Hey, if it was new, they wanted to know about it. They didn't want anything escaping their attention. And this is the way they lived. And so now an opportunity has been opened wide. I want to stop at this point in the message and just bring home a couple of things here. Question, would you be willing to allow your irritation, spiritually speaking, to be turned into witness? Next time that you find yourself upset about some sinful condition in society or in a person, would you be willing to turn that into the gospel to share them, share with them how they can have forgiveness of their sins and eternal life? Don't just get defensive. Don't get mad. Don't get a huff. Don't go away. But engage. Get on the offense. Would you be willing to do that? I ask you a second thing. Would you also be willing to take criticism of you and deflect it? Don't take it personally. Oh yeah, they called me a seed picker. What do they think I am? Just some ignorant rube? This isn't Paul. He's saying, you know what? If their curiosity is raised, if God opens a door, I'm going to go through that door and I'm going to share the gospel. And I'm not going to be rude and offensive in response. I'm going to be the ambassador of Christ to share the gospel with people who desperately need it. Would you be willing to do that as well? Don't take offense. In the sense of being offended, but take offense in the sense of sharing the gospel positively and proactively. These are important lessons, and we'll come to the rest of this together next time. Could we have a word of prayer together? Now, Father, we have come to some very important things here. Many Christians get stirred up and agitated. And Lord, my prayer is that we would take the example of the Apostle Paul today ourselves to turn this irritation into witness. And Lord, as the Martians around us sometimes can be hostile, sometimes be very apathetic, I pray, Lord, that we would not be discouraged, but that we would take opportunities that you open up and even make them. Lord, may we see the opportunities around us. May you use us And Lord, if there'd be any here today who would say, I personally am in need of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to be saved from my idols, my sins. I need the Savior. Lord, I pray that this would be that day where they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, putting their faith in the finished work of Christ. If I can be of help to you, After the service today, I'd be happy to do that. If you need to talk to somebody about anything the Lord's doing in your life, please let me know. It would be my privilege to do that. This time I'm going to ask that we stand quietly to our feet.